You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today it's the Deeper Waters Podcast and the first episode of the Mention of Ours Podcast. We're combining these two together. The Mention of Ours will be its own regular podcast. I'm thinking it's going to be a monthly deal. At this point, you're going to have different guests on, including yours truly from time to time. And today that's what we're talking about, the Mention of Ours, because you see... When, if, if you go through my uh, list of guests I've had on the show, you'll find many heavyweights have come on. Mike Lacona, Gary Habermas, Richard Barkham, Jay Warner Wallace, Paul Capon. We could go on and on and on. But you know, something great about being in this field, you meet many minds that don't have that pedigree with them yet. They don't have that reputation in the world, eh? haven't made it for top of anything. And it's not because they're not great minds, it's just certain circumstances and such. But those minds deserve a mention as well. And it's always great to be in the projects community and find wonderful, brilliant minds worthy of such great mention. Unfortunately, I couldn't get them on the show, so I got stuck today with Joe Furches and Neil Hess to come on today, so... Sorry. Yep, so... Hopefully we'll bring the minds on next time here. <laughs> hey, that's my name. <laughs> all right, well, guys, we are all the mention of ours here, and well, there are more of us here. <clears throat> I mean, more of that aren't on the show today. Here. What? About twice as many of us. Yeah, there's, there's more than for three of us here. There are six all together, but different schedules and such, and people can make it at different times. So uh, let's uh, start with some introductions. I mean, I think people are bit, who listen to the show know who I am, so I think I can skip that part. Um, Neil, tell us about yourself. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? Oh, boy. Uh, well, do you want the like short version, or do you want kind of like the very from the beginning, how I became a believer kind of a version? Yes. <laughs> okay, number two it is. <laughs> so uh, I grew up in, I guess, what would be called... Uh, with the exception of my mother, who is a true believer, uh, a nominal Christian household. My dad was a nominal Christian. I was a nominal Christian. My sisters, or my sisters, my sister is a nominal Christian and so on. And so, uh, you know, we would go to church off and on when I was growing up. Uh, and sorry, I hope you're ready for kind of a long testimony. Anyway, um, so I we went to church on and off. And, uh, and when I got to college, I, you know, kind of stopped and started doing the typical college stuff, you know, drinking, you know, trying to chase girls and so on. Um, and it was interesting because I'll, I will never forget at the end of my freshman year, uh, one of my best friends, Brandon at the time, and he was an atheist. Um, 
you know, we're, ta- we're a bunch of us are standing around a campfire and uh, talking and everything else. And, you know, I, people are asking, oh, what religion are you? What religion? I'm like, oh, I'm a Christian. And my friend Brandon goes, no, you're not. And, I'm, and I was furious. I was absolutely livid. He go, and I'm like, what? How can you say that? And he goes, you're talking about drinking and chasing girls and all this stuff. Man, Christians don't do that. And I was just, I was absolutely livid. And I realized it, it, I didn't realize it until after I became a believer, but I was mad because he was absolutely right. He was completely right. I wasn't doing anything I was supposed to. I was giving myself the title of Christian and living like the rest of the world. So fast forward about four or five years, and I'm doing my student teaching in a school in Oregon. And I'm walking around the classroom, this high school classroom, and I had a de- I developed a really good rapport with this one young lady. And uh, I was talking with her while, you know, all the, all the kids were working and everything. And she says, she conveys a story to me about how her grandmother had died on the operating table and come back. And when she came back, she said, you know, I'd, I'd met Jesus. And now I, I realize people have different understandings of, you know, near-death experiences and stuff like that. Um, I'm not here to argue, you know, for or against them. All, all I know is when she conveyed this story to me, um, not a not like a vision, vision, but just kind of like this picture in my head of Jesus with his open arms. And it was like, I felt a press on my chest of like, oh my gosh, Jesus is real. Like this, this is, this is legit. I, I haven't been living the way I should have. And Jesus is real. And there is going to be a day where I'm going to have to answer for everything I've done. So I go home to my mother, who's a faithful believer, as I was living with them at the time, uh, much to their dismay, because I was still a 25 year old heathen. And, uh, I go home and my mom says, you know what? You need to sit down. You need to read through the gospels. I'm like, all right. So I start and I read and I read and I read and I read. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I start coming on to these really strange verses. Like, um, you know, in Matthew where it talks about, you know, all these other people came out of their graves. I'm like, huh? Or that, you know, Jesus was buried and rose after three days and that uh, other people witnessed it and all this other stuff. And, and And really apologetics and wanting to find those answers to those questions started immediately for me. It, right as I became a believer, it's like, oh my gosh, well, what about the ark? What about creation? What about this? What about that? What about the other thing? And so I dove in immediately into answering these questions, and it has done nothing but co- totally strengthen my faith. Do I still have questions, and are there still things that kind of bug me and go like, what? Yeah, totally. Um, but at the same time, God was developing in me a heart for the lost and a heart to have those answers ready, like it talks about in Second Peter 3.15. And uh, I've just been an apologetics fanatic ever since. I, I mean, I listen to podcast after podcast after podcast after podcast. And just it's amazing to me how much wonderful entertain, not only entertainment, but informational value there is within podcasts. I mean, I, I think you could listen to, oh, gosh, 50 hours of podcasts, new material podcasts a week from these brilliant Christian minds out there. Include, I mean, Nick, including your podcast, right? And, and mm-hmm. so – and so, uh, you know, kind of a, a little suck up plug there. Anyway, so, um, but there's just so much stuff, uh, so many resources and so many materials that we have an advantage over the last 1900 years of Christians they didn't have. And we need to take advantage of that. And we have mm-hmm. more ammunition, so to speak, to be able to answer these questions than any previous generation. And there's so few people seemingly willing to take up uh, – take up their shield, so to speak, and uh, go out there and do what we need to do. So I've started, uh, basically, since I'm a school teacher, I focus on just making very short, you know, five minutes or less video clips that can be digested by middle schoolers and high schoolers, but not talking to them in a demeaning way. Because I see teachers 
in the past who've been like, oh, it's good to see you today. And they sound so phony. It drives me crazy. And so um, I try to speak in a way that they understand, but not in a way that it's spoken down to them. So my focus is um, really communicating with younger people in kind of bite-sized things instead of like long dissertations and papers and books like, you know, some people write Joel. And uh, (laughs) that was... It wasn't that long. I, I'm just messing with you, man. I'm just messing with you. Anyway, uh, so yeah, short story long. That's that's where where I'm at and where I've come uh, come from. Yeah, I, I think people who listen to our show, the mention bars when it really starts going, should recognize that we're probably going to be typical guys giving each other a hard time regularly. We'll so, try. Yeah. Oh it, yeah. It, especially on my end, it, you all don't get to hear a lot of the deeper wireless podcasts, but I have a deep sarcastic wit, so. Now, Not better than was that sarcasm? Maybe. <laughs> now, Joe, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing here. Certainly. All right. Sadly, I do not have a dramatic conversion experience to tell you. I was uh-huh. born into a Christian school. I was raised uh, in. I'm sorry. I was born in a Christian home. I was raised in a Christian school, uh, and then I went to a Christian college. So I've pretty much been a Christian all the time. Um, because I went to a, because I was wrapped up in this Christian bubble where I never got pushback on my faith, I didn't really find any need or even know about apologetics for most of my early life. But I did have the privilege, and I didn't realize at the time how much of a privilege it was, to hear Ravi Zacharias speak live mm-hmm. at one point. At the time, he was just another speaker. But what I liked about his speech was that they really appealed to the intellect. And that's what really started to intrigue me about apologetics was the intellectual aspect of it. When I went to a Christian college, the kinds of things they were saying about the writing of Scripture and the development of life and so forth were a lot different than what I had grown up with. And, you know, hearing that the early Old Testament was just a series of Babylonian myths that had been incorporated into a Hebrew tradition and edited down through the years by scholars. It wasn't copacetic with me at the time, so I started reaching out for other material to find out which was true and which wasn't. After I got out of college, I got into the work world, and... Um, well, let's fast forward to about five years ago. I was, I got my first BlackBerry. Let's give it up for BlackBerry. And I started started listening to podcasts and I was looking for material to listen to. And of course I was attracted to apologetics as I always have been. And after listening to a few, I decided that I was going to do a little apologizing of my own So I started my own blog. Now, I'm a writer, and as a writer, I'm looking for things to write. So at the time, I was looking for some jobs, and I came across an organization called The Examiner. Examiner had a unique model for reporting. They hired freelancers all over the country for every topic under the sun. When I came across an ad for them, it was music, and I thought, well, with a little research, I could probably write about music. So I got on their site to apply for the job, and I couldn't find music anywhere, but I went scrolling through all the topics, and Christian apologetics came up, which blew me away. 
so I decided to stop blogging and to start writing uh, and being paid to write for the same things I was blogging about. Now, as a news organization, they wanted things that were newsworthy. And there's not a whole lot of news in the apologetic field. Uh, so I started doing a lot of reviews and interviews. Among the first interviews that I did was a young man who was involved in a show called Please Convince Me. He was a fan, and he wrote in to say that he was starting his own ministry uh, titled Soul Winning Students. So I figured this is a guy who's getting started in the uh, ministry field. Why not contact him and interview him? So I did. He was an intriguing guy. Seemed like he was just getting started. So he had a little bit of stuff for, to learn. But uh, Neil Hess was a nice guy. So I liked the I interview. Concur. So what changed? Yes. <laughs> I what do not changed? know. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Ouch. Maybe the years and the hardening that comes with experience. Maybe he was around um, you too much, Joe. Possibly. Uh, um, but I continued to do reviews and interviews. And at one point, I, was, I had been, begun to travel in the apologetic circles because my articles were popular enough that I was invited to involve myself in several apologetic next networks. And I came across uh, several small-time podcasters, uh, one of which was a guy named Nick Peters, who ran Deeper Waters. Mm. And so I listened to his, or his podcast, and I did a review of it, and I said some complimentary things and offered some constructive uh, observations on it. And uh, a few years later, after I published a book, I asked Nick Peters to review it, and he said some positive things and offered some constructive uh, criticisms of it. So he got me back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then among the people that I also listened to the podcast and review was, uh, Tyler, whatever his last name is. And, who? uh, what's that? Who? Uh, a guy named Tyler. He has a last name. Oh, okay. My mind right now. Uh, it's Villa, like a villa in the country or maybe Vela. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. He's actually been on the show twice. Tyler Vila. Tyler Vila. What? Like Bob. He's Bob Vila's nephew. That's what it is. I see. It's a shame he couldn't make it at this time. It's probably fixing it. So I did a review of his podcast. I interviewed him at one point, and then I uh, reviewed his book. I also submitted my book for him to review. I'm still waiting to get that review, though. But at any rate, so I ran into those three guys, and the examiner went under last year. And all of my articles from them were gone at that point. Uh, but a year before that, I had written a book. And that was the book I'd been talking about. That. So now I'm a published author in apologetics. I've been writing in apologetics for a number of years now. I've actually written for a number of publications in addition to The Examiner, which is nice since The Examiner is gone. But two things happened this summer that uh, resulted in an event unique to my life. One of them was that I had completed a second book and I submitted it to my book agent who's been shopping around for publishers for me, still is. And one of the common rejections I got was that my name wasn't big enough in the ministry field to push books. The second thing that happened was I had a major surgery and the complications resulting from the surgery made me think that I may not be able to go back to work. So I started a campaign to 
increase my name recognition in the ministry field so that I might be able to make a little more money in writing because mommies don't let your kids grow up to be writers. There's no money in it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the other thing was that uh, I wanted to raise my name recognition so maybe publishers would be a little more confident in me. As part of this, I started a uh, Facebook page devoted to my writing. And you got to post things to keep people interested. So I had, as anybody in this field does, for years I'd been thinking, I'd like to do my own apologetic conference. Invite a few people out, have them talk at my church. Be great. But instead of getting one of these big-name apologists, what if I were to get these talented little guys that I know through different networks, invite them out, have them speak, It'd be great. They get a platform, and they're good speakers. So this was a dream I'd had, and so I decided to just kind of post this daydream on my Facebook page and tag a couple of the guys I was thinking about. So I did. The the guys that I got tagged came in and immediately started a conversation, mostly joking on each other. But the jokes started to get kind of serious, and uh, the more serious it got, the more we talked about what we would actually do. Mm-hmm. So eventually I started a business page for this group, who I like to call the mentionables because they deserve a little mention. And then I started a actual web page for them. And then a friend of mine started a conference for them that's coming up in May 2018. So the thing has snowballed since, and it's all been kind of an accident mm-hmm. from beginning to end. It has been. Maybe a little divine influence. Yeah, providence is probably the real word, but Mm -hmm. we'll see what happens from here. Yeah, this conference will be in Greensboro also, which works great for me. We've got a friend in Greensboro, and we're going to be meeting again some friends who are in Charlotte, and one of them just got married last December. So we've been looking for a good excuse to see them again, so now this is our excuse. Okay. Glad I could provide that for you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what we're going to be doing today also, it's going to be a little bit different from the regular format of Deeper Waters, because this is going to be more like the format of Mention Bars, where each of us talks about something that we think is important, relevant to the projects, and then we just discuss it back and forth and such, and go on from there. We're, we're kind of winging this a little bit, because we're a bunch of guys who are doing this all on the internet, and like many guys, we're not the masters of organization. So we've been winging it from the beginning, Nick. Yep. I was so, going to say I'm half bird at this point, man. So, um, Joe, how would you like to get us started here? Well, each of us has a topic that we were supposed to speak on mm-hmm. uh, for the podcast, and I'd still like to address those topics. Mm-hmm. Nick, it's your podcast. You want to start? Well, yes, I think. The topic that I believe I'll be speaking on for the for the conference, I'm going to go with the resurrection of Jesus. Not much of a shock. That's a good one. It's kind of the family pedigree, as you all know. I've uh, managed to be influenced in my life very closely by both Gary Habermas, who uh, introduced me to my wife and married us, I should say. And Seriously? I had no idea. Yeah, check my Facebook page and look cool. at the wedding photos. Gary Habermas officiated our wedding. Wow, professor and matchmaker. Yep, I've told him if apologetics ever starts to 
not work out, go into matchmaking. And so Gary is the one who introduced us and married us. And my wife is the daughter of Mike Lacona. So there was my second great influence on the resurrection. I could say my ministry. Hey, Nick. Yes. Name drop much? Some. Um, my ministry partner is also J.P. Holding of Tectonics, and he's written a book on the resurrection as well. So I've taken his approach, and I combine it with Mike and Gary's approach. And throwing some N.T. Wright, who I'm still dreaming of meeting someday, and hopefully maybe even interviewing on my show. But my approach to a resurrection, where we've got the minimal facts approach right at the start. And you two guys know about the Men More Facts approach, but just in case others don't and they haven't heard Mike or Gary on my show, it's that you look at the information that is granted by the majority of critical scholars of the New Testament. And I mean real actual scholars for those listening out there who are internet atheists and such, not people who can just publish a blog and have a YouTube channel that doesn't make you automatically an authority, believe it or not. I'm about people who spend their life work studying the New Testament, which includes many, many non-Christians as well. No offense, Neil. Yeah, ain't no offense to any of us here. Uh huh. But when we look at it, there are some things that are pretty much these are certain facts about the historical Jesus that you're really not going to find disputed. In, one of the things I plan on speaking on some at the conference also along with this is that, yes, Jesus did exist. For all you internet atheists out there who are actually jumping on this bandwagon, you're only embarrassing yourselves, seriously. But start with Jesus, and he was crucified. All of our earliest sources say this. We have no contrary account for his death. It's accepted by... That's because he didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> It's accepted by even the opponents of Christianity. And it's something incredibly shameful. And this is something we really miss in our modern world. How you died in the ancient world mattered. If you were beheaded, for instance, like John the Baptist, no doubt it was a death you didn't want to undergo, but it was not seen as a shameful death. This was a death that was given to Roman citizens, even. But crucifixion was for the lowest of the low. To say a crucified man was a messiah would be like saying a convicted pe- pedophile was going to be the head of a Southern Baptist convention, for instance. But Jesus was crucified. Now, next one is that he was buried in a tomb. You'll find some pushback to this. Bart Ehrman has uh, given some pushback. I've interviewed Greg Manette and Craig Evans both on this topic, though. And, and, uh, and this what is they a- say? Well, they, they agree with us. I mean, all of our early sources say Jesus was buried in a tomb. There isn't any real contrary story. If we accepted other events on the same historical data, which we do, we'd accept the empty tomb. And some people could say, well, well the Romans didn't really do this with Jews. They just took dead bodies and threw them in a common grave and such. Now, everywhere else in the Roman Empire, I'd agree. But in the land of Israel, when it was peacetime, 
They did allow the Jews to observe their burial rites. And one of the reasons for this is, if you just have a body left out there, it could pollute the land. And you could have an animal pick part of a body up and take it to the temple grounds, for instance. And that would cause serious defilement. And so that's part of a major issue. And Jody Magnets is a Jewish New Testament scholar specializing in burial practices. And she's said that the accounts of the burial of Jesus, they don't seem to have any legendary add-ins or anything like that. They're entirely consistent. By the way, it's very interesting to note that Bart Ehrman never mentions her or any other specialist in the field of this when he writes his book, How Jesus Became God. She, in particular, it's very interesting he doesn't mention her because she teaches at the very university he teaches at, and she was hired by him as well. Now, the next one is that the tomb was found empty, and I think this one goes along with the barrier aspect, because if the tomb hadn't been found empty, there would have been no Christianity to begin with. I mean, you can't get a movement off the ground saying the Lord is risen if the Lord is lying there in his tomb. And then from there you go on to that Jesus was seen alive again, or he was claimed to be seen alive again, I should say, after his death. Again, non-Christian scholars will agree the disciples had experiences that they were sure was the risen Jesus appearing to them. That doesn't mean the reason Jesus did appear, but it does mean the disciples were convinced he appeared. This is in all of our earliest sources, including the Creed in 1 Corinthians 15. And the Creed is part of an oral tradition, and it dates to at the earliest within five years of the events. Many scholars date it even earlier. I think Bart Ehrman goes two to three years or so. Was Jesus Seminar dates this early. And this is where when Gary Habermas debated the non-Christian New Testament scholar James Crossley on this, when he started telling all these minimal facts to him, Justin Browley, the host, said, So, uh, Dr. Crossley, do you want to uh, dispute any of these? Says, no, not a single one of them. I accept them all. And he even referred to 1 Corinthians 15, the Creed there, as a gold mine. His own words. You know, hallucinations, they don't really work. The disciples weren't much in my mindset to have hallucinations. Hallucinations also are not group experiences, and there are multiple group appearances in the Creed. And if there was a hallucination, it would likely be of Jesus in Abraham's bosom. Jesus divinely exalted and such. It would not be Jesus walking around among us. And then we can add in the conversion of Paul and James. Now, I'm not sure if any of you guys have brothers or not, but for anyone... Oh, I got two of them. Okay. I got yeah. one. Okay, guys, what would it take you to convince your, you, your brother was the Messiah and God? Well, my older brother, sure. My younger brother, please. Um, <laughs> for for someone to convince me my brother would be God, uh, yeah, it would take basically a combination of miracles like we see in the scriptures. Yep. Give yeah. us the facts, man. Just the yep. mineral facts. 
where James was a skeptic all his life of his brother, but then after the event, James becomes the leader of a New Testament church in Jerusalem, pretty much. And Paul was skeptic. He was going around persecuting the church. And then after he had what he said was an appearance, and even a late appearance, according to him, out of due time and such, he becomes the church's greatest evangelist from that point on. Now, some people are going to say he did it for money, power, wanting to hold on to this new movement. Nothing like that. In Philippians 3, we find his own testimony, and things were going pretty darn good for him. And yet, he abandoned it all. And the only reason I can think of is he was very convinced Jesus was who he said he was. Now, Plus, I, there was all that sweet torture. Yeah. Yeah, all, all the great torture that he got, those, those were kind of the great perks, obviously, of sure. joining the Jesus movement. Now, you, you, you could get uh, beheaded, and that was a great type of uh, death, I hear. Oh, yeah. All, all the cool kids were getting beheaded. I mean, that, that's what everyone wanted. Now, I, I also add in honor shame aspects to this, because I think so many of us miss so much of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well, because we read it as if the culture was just like ours, when it wasn't. But even in that, you actually do have to study the context of what you're reading about. And one aspect of that already, takes work. Yeah, yeah. It, it's such a it's such a hideous sacrifice. It, it's much easier to just read the text and take everything literally. Yeah. I always get amazed at those skeptics out there who like to make fun of Christians taking the text literally. Usually seem to take the text just as literally. Hey, that's many, how I was raised, man. Yeah, you know, for many atheists, their approach to reading the Bible and such they become they switch from Christian to atheist. Their approach to reading the Bible and evidence doesn't really change. Only their loyalty changes. Wherever they they believe Christian arguments blindly before, now they believe atheist arguments blindly. But the honor, into my section, dude. Yeah, the honor shame aspect, one part I've already mentioned was that, uh, was that crucifixion was seen as something shameful. If you were wanting to reach people with a new religious movement, you would not have your leader be crucified. Paul himself says this is a stumbling block in 1 Corinthians 1. And we really miss that out in this world. I mean, some people are Say, well, this provides a story of great hope and courage to people. Where if that's the case, all they could, had to say is, well, that was a good story. Just like we treat, say, a fairy tale today. And they go off on their way. Not a problem. It doesn't mean they have to commit their lives to it. But I, I hardly doubt any of them would have said, oh, that's a great story. And also, Christianity was a new movement. The new was looked at with, with suspicion in the ancient world because, I mean, the ancients had to be the ones that were closest to the gods. They were there at the start and such. And the gods aren't going to suddenly open up a whole new way entirely. I mean, why not go with the ancient wisdom that has been passed down. In fact, that's why the Jews were granted toleration in the Roman Empire, because they had a movement that was old, so they were granted exceptions. They didn't have to sacrifice to the emperor and pray to the emperor. They could sacrifice 
for the emperor and pray for the emperor. Christians didn't have that luxury because Christianity wasn't an ethnic sort of thing. You weren't born into a nationality of Christian. You were converted into it. Christianity also taught the resurrection of the body, which was something just as shameful back then. People didn't really want to be resurrected, for the most part because the body was seen as a prison, and you were supposed to escape from it. This is why Gnosticism was so popular, since it said matter is evil, and it gave people a way to explain that. What really cured this kind of idea, though, was Jesus was resurrected in a material body. And we'd like to say Gnosticism died back then. It didn't. Gnosticism is still around today. Many Christians, many pastors are saying things that I think if they realized it, it's really Gnostic may save them. Especially when we talk about the body and end times and things like that. When I did my grandmother's funeral several years ago, I was one of three pastors assigned to do it. And the pastor of her church got up and he gave a talk and he said, You know, right now, she is experiencing the power of a resurrection. And I'm sitting in the back waiting for my turn. I'm going to say, um, excuse me, pastor, I, I think her, I see her corpse down there in the casket. I'm pretty sure she's not experiencing the resurrection right now. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a great comeback. Yeah, I I think when we talk about the after death and such, and we make it all about heaven instead of about resurrection, we're kind of leaning towards Gnosticism when we do that. Christianity was also exclusionary, which was very shameful at the time. That you could uh, have whatever belief you wanted, but when you uh, said that your belief was the only way. That was a problem. I mean, the Roman Empire was open to people worshipping Mithra or Isis or Osiris. You know, those guys who Jesus was copied from, of course. There were so many gods that you could worship. The Greek gods have been taken over by the Roman gods, by the Romans and such, and turned into Roman gods. They were fine with whatever you want to worship. But it, when Jesus came along, it was... These other gods, they're not even real. That's why Christians early on were accused of being atheists. Because they denied the reality of the other gods. Now, I've interviewed Larry Hurtado on my show about this with his book, Destroyer of the Gods. And how this would be a killer for a Gentile, especially because you go into a community... And you enter the house of your friend, and one of the first things you're supposed to do is pay obeisance to the honor of his household gods. And a Christian would come in and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And that would grant you exclusion from a social community. Now, something else interesting about all this is that from what we know about early Christianity, some of the, a, a good number of converts came from middle and upper class people. Why is this important? These people had the most honor to lose if they became Christians. But at the same time, they have the greatest means to check for facts. They could send a servant or two to the area of Israel, have them ask around, ask questions, do some searching, and come back and report something. These people did become Christians, though. 
We have to ask, why? I mean, some people will say, well, Christianity thrived because Constantine came along and he legalized Christianity. No, he did not make it the official religion of the Roman Empire. He just legalized it. But the thing is, Christianity should have died long before Constantine came. Now, some people will say, well, what about Mormonism? Or what about Islam? Well, one of the things with Islam, let's start there. Islam and Christianity have something in common. They were both they were both spread by the point of a sword. The difference is which way the sword was pointing. Islam was a religion that allowed for conquest so you could get war, women, and wealth. Three things many guys love. And if That's the trifecta there, man. Yep. And if Islam hadn't been a military religion, I suspect it would have died out too. As for Mormonism, Mormonism grew up in a culture that was much more live and let live. They already had Christian values soaked into it, and so it was just adding on to those. And when persecution did come, what did the Mormons do? They went all the way out west, where they were safe, and they just built themselves up, generally by having children, and since for quite a while the Mormons had multiple wives, it was pretty easy to reproduce themselves. And today, they've just kind of been mainstreamed into our culture, but our culture was very different. We're not an honor-shame-based culture, and that's why Mormonism has been able to thrive in this culture, because we do practice general open-mindedness with letting people believe what they believe. So, I mean, that's pretty much the case for a resurrection. And when I speak at the conference, I'll... I plan on saying a lot more, and I do plan on doing other other tracks. I'm planning, for instance, on having a whole section on Jesus mythicism and a section on marriage and family. Yeah, you got an hour to kill, so I'm certain that'll do it. Yeah. So, which one of you guys wants to go next and talk about something of interest to you? Well, I could do it, I suppose. Okay. Go for it, Joe. Everyone get your pillows All out. Right. Yes. Uh, just try to suppress those yawns, and I'll launch into it. You might have trouble keeping up with this, because I'm going to talk about how atheists are uh, smarter than religious people. That'll be a quick topic. You, you guys with me so far? Um, huh? huh? What? Using too many big right. words, dude. Well, just uh, kind of keep quiet while the adults are talking. At any rate, um, this is something that pops up on the internet pretty frequently, as you probably know, having traveled in apologetics networks. These arguments will come out saying, hey, studies show that atheists are more intelligent than Christians. I ran across this argument first um, while listening to a podcast that I used to follow that was an atheist podcast. And one of the gentlemen in the podcast was himself a doctor of psychology, and he was looking at a number of studies in a meta-study, which is when you survey a number of studies and try to draw conclusions out of them, to see what they had to say about the intelligence of atheists versus the ignorance of Christians, well, religious people in general. The uh, gentleman's name was Dr. Luke Galen. I didn't catch the university at which he teaches, but he's a professor at a university, so he's got everything going for him. Atheist, uh, psychologist, and professor. So what he basically showed was that 
there's a number of studies. He looked at 53 studies that showed negative correlations between religion and intelligence. Only 10 of those showed positive correlations. Uh, and there were 37 with significant uh, results, meaning that they were probably uh, had accurate data. And 35 were negative with two positive, uh, basically saying that there was a negative correlation overall between intelligence and religion. Now, one thing I want to note about this is their measures of intelligence. In these studies, they were using things like IQ tests as measure of intelligence, uh, GPA scores, SAT scores, and advancement through the education system. So these were the conclusions that they came to, is that in general, the religiosity of a person had a negative correlation with the overall intelligence of that person when studied on these scales. They, um, there's another set of studies that they touched on, but it's uh, I'm pulling this from different studies. Uh, studies that I got from elsewhere, which show that there is a certain type of thought associated with atheism and with religion. People who are non-believers tend to operate in a uh, analytical thought style, and people who are religious tend to operate in an intuitive uh, style. So let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you're watching a, uh, an old cop show, and you've got the seasoned detective and his newbie partner, and they're hot on the trail of a killer. And the newbie partner's looking at all the evidence that they've gathered, and he says, well, this guy's got to be the killer. And the seasoned professional says, well, I got a gut feeling about the other guy. Now, what they've just demonstrated is the difference between uh, intuitive thinking and uh, analytical thinking. The analytical thinking thinking is a slow, considerate style of thinking that examines evidence and comes to conclusions from it. The, uh, the intuitive style of thinking is when you go with your gut, you make rapid and usually emotional decisions based on that. And what they're saying is that those people who make rapid calls that are uh, more emotive are more likely to be religious. And those people who go with analytical styles of thinking, slow, considerate styles, are more likely to be non-religious. So the, the, one of the uh, other results from this is that uh, women tend to be more intuitive than men, and that's why you have more women that are religious than men. Anyway, so those are the things I wanted to bring to the table originally. What do you guys think of all that? Um, so I have to wake up first. Sure. Uh, it sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. So you uh, you agree with all of those deductions and conclusions? I, I I don't know if I do or not. I'm a religious person, so I'm not supposed to be smart enough to decide. Sure. Sure. No, I get it. Um, <laughs> but I'm telling you, you should be able to make quick uh, decisions about what you think. All right. Well, let me talk about some of the studies they did uh, to come up with this. Uh, I'm specifically going to talk about the intuitive versus uh, analytical. The way that they did this was they would bring religious people in. They'd measure their religion on these uh, scale scores where they would tell them, how often do you pray on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, do you believe in angels on a scale of 1 to 10? And so forth. So they could get a scaled score of just how religious this person really was. 
And then they'd separate them into groups to the non-religious, to the extreme religious, and they would do a number of things for them. They would, uh, for instance, they'd throw trick questions at them. You guys have had those in school. Mm-hmm. And the more intuitive a person was, the more likely they were uh, to fall for the trick in the question instead of sit down, think it through, and come up with the right answer. Um, and so on and so forth. Uh, but another way they would do this was to prime the person. Uh, for instance, they would take people who were analytical and tended to be non-believers, and they would make them make rapid calls, uh, quick rapid calls on uh, questions. So they forced them to be intuitive. And after doing that, they would uh, do another scaled score with them, and the person would tend to register more spiritual or religious once they'd been forced to be intuitive. And they'd do the same thing in reverse. They'd take a religious person, they would force them to sit down and analyze and think things out, and they would score lower on the religious score. So, you know, the conclusion, religious people are stupid, right? Well, everyone knew that one. All right. Now, you guys have anything to put in before I get to my analysis of the thing? Well, I think the biggest, well, not the biggest, but I think one of the best ways, and, and I heard Greg Koch will talk about this, I think just like in the past couple of weeks, saying one of the best ways to answer an atheist in that sense of intelligence is to say, do you believe something created everything or nothing created everything? Because that's literally all we're left with, and and they're required to go with no things. So it's like, okay, so you believe a scientific impossibility. Who's really not thinking properly here? Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so it's got to do with that, that a little bit, you know, trying to think through some of the larger paradigms that we hold. Sure. So I'll start with an article from Tori DeAngelis uh, that looks at some studies um, about inherited beliefs. And the studies attempted to find whether the opinions and beliefs that you have, say, about religion or politics and so forth, are genetic in any way. Well, long story short, they found that they weren't genetic. What they found was that genetic tendencies uh, would affect where you ended up thinking. So, for instance, if you're very athletic uh, through genetics, then you'll end up receiving rewards through your participation in athletics. You'll be complimented, you'll experience success more and so forth, and then you'll associate those successes with sports and you'll become a sports guy. So that makes sense. You know, the things that you're genetically programmed to do will end up in the direction you take with your life and therefore shape your opinions eventually. But mostly uh, opinions and beliefs are absorbed from one's environment. So now let's talk about Howard Gardner. Neil, you're a teacher. You remember Howard Gardner? Howard Gardner. I must have slept through that class in college. Sorry. Sorry. So Howard Gardner uh, came up with the theory of intelligences. Is this starting to sound familiar? Yeah. Is this the, uh, oh, what'd you call it? Not IMDB. That's a movie website. The four letters that describe personalities. I can't remember what they're called. Not <laughs> Miles Briggs, INT, INFJ. Yeah. I, D- different thing. Yeah. 
basically before Howard Gardner came up, uh, along on the scene, which was maybe 30 to 50 years ago. I could sit down and look it up, but that would take time and energy, and I don't want to do that. At any rate, uh, Howard Gardner came along, and what he said is that for pretty much all of time, we've been looking at intelligence as a single monolithic thing. Uh, it has to do with how well you do in the classroom and uh, how well you uh, how easily you absorb information and then analyze that information and spit out answers and so forth now what howard says what mr gardner said is that there are a number of types of intelligence out there and there are a number of ways of absorbing and using information so without sitting down and looking at them some examples would be that some people are more musically inclined so that they'll they're easier to learn things through music so you make a little song out of something and they'll pick up the information that way and ultimately their intelligence will be channeled in the direction of music uh, some people are more artistic some people are more mathematically inclined etc and of course, he was also the one that came up with the idea of emotional intelligence, where intuition and um, empathy and so forth were your real strong suits. And so you were very inclined to be a social person uh, because of empathy. So in the end, education tried to change the way that it did things based on this theory of multiple intelligences. So uh, you probably heard of the new math. Neil, do you teach new math? No, thank God, I teach science. Well, the theory behind new math is that they're teaching you multiple ways of coming to a mathematical answer, and those multiple ways are intended to appeal to different types of intelligences instead of the old-fashioned way we did it. I'm not an advocate necessarily of new math. I haven't really tried it out, but I'm explaining the theory behind it. Um, and so forth, so that in your modern classroom, teachers are um, supposed to prepare lessons in a kinetic way, in a visual way, in an auditory way, and come up with activities that allow people to work together as a team. So in case you're emotionally intelligent, you get that uh, social element out of it. And somehow, through teaching in all these different ways, everybody absorbs the information and we're good. Probably that doesn't happen in too many classrooms, and it hasn't happened for, you know, everything before maybe 10 or 20 years ago when they started to implement these things. In those times, the idea was to teach toward the middle, which is basically you taught one way and you tried to make the students learn the way you wanted them to learn. Now the idea is the other way around. Instead of students doing all the work, the teacher does all the work. And they try to bring the information to the students, bring the mountain to Muhammad instead of the other way around. Is it Muhammad? No? Nothing? You guys still there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. All right. So anyway, you bring the information to the students before it was the uh, students had to work through the information. The, long, uh, the short story out of what I'm trying to explain to you here is that academia, as, for the most part, is a self-selective system. People who will excel through the academic structure will do so because they have a particular thought style. That brings us back to intuition versus analytical thinking. The people who are going to be successful in school have a very particular thought style because that's the way that education is set up, set up to appeal to a very particular thought style. 
people who don't have that thought style don't keep up with the classroom as well. You uh, you agree with us now? Yeah, absolutely. I've seen it every year. Mm-hmm. Okay, good deal. So the education. This brings me to my next next thought. The education system tends to be unsympathetic to religion and religious thinking in general. Now I'm gonna. Now I'm not gonna jump on a high horse and talk about no prayer in schools or teaching a, a creationism in schools and so forth. Uh, I'm not necessarily on that boat, but I will say in a more general sense that the academic system, even in high school, tends to try to avoid any kind of religion, religious associations. They try to push that off, push that back, and if you happen to be a Christian teacher, you've got to kind of keep that to yourself. Right, Neil? Yeah, for the most part. Okay. Then you get to college, and college is very uh, against religion, and it tends to be an environment in which somebody who is irreligious will excel because they, they're not hung up with those uh, ideas. And I'm, I'm pulling this from actual facts that I researched that said that uh, college professors, at the very least, uh, are encouraged to kind of keep their political and religious feelings to themselves unless those political opinions are left-leaning and those religious opinions are non-religious. So it's a great environment for people who are less religious than not, and it, a person tends to absorb the beliefs and so forth from their environment. So bringing back to this inherited uh, ideals situation, a person with a certain type of thought style will excel through the education system. They'll get their reward through excelling through the education system and doing well in school. And the further you go towards higher education, the more you're discouraged from having religious ideas. So my theory here is that the reason that that atheists tend to be more intelligent than Christians is that atheists are made, manufactured through higher education. Disagree, fellows? Agree? Uh, I could go with that. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I would agree with that absolutely. Fair enough. And my proof for this is if you go back to earlier times when religion, when the church was establishing universities and education system, the higher educated people tend to be largely Christian. You go back to middle medieval times and look at the scientists and the scholars, the logicians and the philosophers. All that they do is in reference to religion and Christianity. Uh, Your philosophers, your logicians, would use the mind of God as a reference point for the logic that they're developing. You can't read a medieval medieval text without it, text without it referencing religion. So back then, the studies would have shown that your most intelligent people were were religious in nature, because Mm -hmm. that's the way that the educational institutions were set up. Right. Makes total sense, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's my theory based on the studies that I've done. And so the next time that uh, somebody comes up along with an article that says atheists are more intelligent than Christians, that would be my response. I I just always want to interact with the atheists here and usually ask them a question like this. When was the last time you read an academic book that disagreed with what you believe? Yep, that's a great question. 
That's a great, well, and that's a good one for all of us. If we're really yeah. desiring and seeking after truth, we should never be afraid to at mm-hmm. least listen to information that's presented to us. Doesn't mean we automatically have to agree with it. Yeah, I was engaged on a Facebook conversation with someone within the past month. I thought you were engaged to Allie. That was long, long ago. We're married now. Uh, have you not been keeping up? Okay. But I was in a conversation yeah. with someone on Facebook and. I was trying to recommend that they read a book on the topic of resurrection since I was convinced and I still remember they were just embarrassing themselves while we were arguing. He said, look, I'm not going to read your books on the resurrection and I think we both know you're not going to read a book by an atheist on this topic. Um, yeah, sorry, but you're wrong about when I regularly read books by atheists on these kinds of topics. In fact, I, for the most part, I tend to really enjoy it. I mean... The more scholarly ones are more interesting, but even when you have to read ones from the more rank-and-file people, it, it can be amusing to see the names of arguments that people will go to to try and avoid something. Yep. Cognitive distance and selection bias. Yeah, yep. cogn- Those are biggies. I, I think most people who talk about cognitive dissonance have probably never even read a book on it. <laughs> well... To be fair, I got this entire argument from an atheist podcast that I was listening to and from an atheist professor, so uh, innocent as charged. <laughs> right, it, the, the main work on cognitive dissonance that started the whole thing was uh, Leon Festinger's book, When Prophecy Fails, and even then it wasn't a true example of cognitive dissonance because the researchers who were studying it had to interfere with the experiment from time to time. And such so yeah and it was a UFO call yeah I it, love the it, UFO it was call. you can do some looking update and find out what her real name was and things of that sort and so that that's kind of where it got started and it really doesn't apply to Christianity I think it applies much more in a, an individualistic mindset and such I I think cognitive basis is just something often thrown out just to avoid you know, just to avoid Christianity, you can just say this, and you know, you sound really smart when you say it because you're supposedly using a big term, and everyone's supposed to bow, bow down at me and say, "Oh gosh, I, I never realized I was doing that." Well, it's based around tribalism, and Christians aren't the only ones who are right. uh, guilty of tribalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Any time that you have a thing that you believed, you're going to seek out reinforcement from other people who believe that thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a human difficulty, if you want to call it a difficulty, because the mind, when it adopts a belief, mm-hmm. is rewarded by uh, when that belief is accepted, and it is not rewarded. It is punished when that belief is denied. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll talk about that in a future episode.
Well, before we move on, I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast and the Mention of Ours podcast here at... From this point on, they're going to be two separate podcasts, though. When you're here next week, you're going to hear absolutely nothing. Because it's my plan, I have the money still holds out in our account and such. I've seen that Japan Fest is going on here in Atlanta, and I'd like to take Audi to it. So you're not going to hear anything. But the week after that, I'm going to have Kevin Shute on here. He's going to be talking about his book of Games and God. We're going to be discussing video games and apologetics. So if you're a big gamer like I am, you're going to want to be here for that. Now uh, That's sweet. Wait until you have kids. Mm. You won't be a gamer anymore. Oh, I, I'm not sure that if we get to that point someday, uh, we'll be uh, teaching them the fine traditions we grew up with in gaming. Pac-Man and such? More like Solo Mar- Contra? Is Mario, that the sixth Zelda, Solo, Solo Contra? Uh, Contra, that, that was a classic. I, I I still remember the economy code of this day, but I'm thinking more Mario, Zelda, Mega Man, Final Fantasy. No Resident Evil in there? No, I never got into that. The only shooter I, I think I really got into too much was GoldenEye. For instance, that, oh that was my a gosh. classic. Uh, I don't know how many hundreds of hours I dropped into that game. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, time. Y'all are noobs. I was, a, I was a computer, a PC gamer from the beginning. Mm. It was all about the StarCraft for me. Mm. Oh, StarCraft. I played that one, too. Not mm. a whole lot, but I played it. They still have national, international tournaments with that. With the original. That's crazy. Yeah, and it's huge, I think, in Korea, isn't it? Yeah, that's where they wow. have those. I think nuts. we've forgotten about it in the U.S. Yeah, I think we found something we could have for a group discussion on the Mention of Ours podcast sometime. Well, I know this I might be a little Ty- controversial. Tyler might call us a nerds again. Well, well, I, do, I, I think I might have both of you beat, and, I, and I'm sure some of the audience is going to cringe when I say I still enjoy a game of Magic the Gathering every now and then, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, you're not the only one, so I think I've got, I think I've joined you in that me. I used to have one of the biggest collections of cards there, so. Excellent. I was afraid I was going to be excommunicated from the podcast, so I know some people can be a little sensitive about it. (laughs) Magic, is that like Pokemon at all? Uh, it was around before Pokemon. I I kid, I kid. (laughs) I was trying to get a reaction out of you. Actually, my wife and I both still do Pokemon today. Uh, oh, I don't, the one I, where you wander around with your phone and try to find them in virtual reality? Yep. Oh my okay. gosh. <laughs> my but my friend Dusty does that too. It's it's funny. Hey, gaming is something my wife and I do together, although she doesn't really want to do it against me too often. All right, all right. Guys, dial it back. We might attract a younger audience. <laughs> I know, right? Heaven forbid that we, we have, uh, you know, hobbies. <laughs> Yeah, there was. It's all right. As soon as you, as soon as you go into your section, Neil, you're going to chase all the younger uh, ones away. I know. I know. It's bad. Yeah, well, there was a time when I, uh, I had the original Super Mario Brothers on our Wii installed, and Ali saw me getting ready to start going through it, and I just told her, "I'm going to go through about using any warp stones. I want to go through the game itself." And she said, "Oh, put it on two player. I want to play too." So I did, and I but- went through the game. On one life, no deaths whatsoever, finish the game. And then she said, um, I, I think I don't want to play anymore. Oh, does that come with the double pack where you get to shoot ducks with a pistol and the dog laughs at you? 
The only oh. dog my wife has ever hated, I think, is that dog. Everyone hates that dog. We <laughs> wanted to shoot that dog. Also, why are you shooting ducks with a pistol? I mean, come on. Bird gun. I, I know, right? They could have at least put a longer barrel on it. Mm. Seriously. <laughs> well, I think we should move on. Although we could have a talk about this on the mission bars, about the intersection of video games and Christianity, kind of a pop culture subject sometime. But Yes, I'm, please. Yeah, that'd be great. My games with my Christianity? Yep. Yeah. That's the dream right there. Oh, dude, that would be awesome. Release like a Jesus uh, MMORPG. Not that you could play as Jesus, but you could play as one of the apostles or something. You know, it, did it, you ever play that Noah's Ark game that was uh, Wolfenstein Wisdom 3D tree. engine? Wisdom Are you tree. serious? Oh. There's a Noah's Ark Wolfenstein? <laughs> yeah, basically you're running around trying to ca- knock animals out with a slingshot so you can capture them, put them back on nah. the <laughs> But it's the engine for Wolfenstein 3D. You know, it, it, it's kind of interesting about what we're doing right now. This is kind of like how the mentional bars got started anyway. So now you see how we're going to decide how we're going to do each of our podcasts. We're just going to do this same kind of thing. In, indeed, indeed. So, Neil, right. what, what he, do you have? He's on you, a cross, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. So now we'll we'll get down to business and be serious. So, oh, oh. Oh, yeah, I know, far. right? So disappointed. Okay, so the reason I chose to talk about the thief on the cross is because... Oh, dude, you will pay. You will pay. So I chose one of those nasal strips, man. We're doing podcasts now. No, you know, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to get some sort of like sound generator and uh, just have some sound effects to play uh, to interrupt you guys and throw you guys off your game. So anyway, interrupting uh, is our job. Well, as you just did. Thanks a lot, Joel. Uh, Let me interrupt to point out that interrupting is also my job as well. Okay. You know, if we keep doing this, we're just going to pad the time until it's all over, and I won't have to say anything at all. You're hey, let's keep doing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, station identification. Here we go. So Luke 23 um, was huge for me when I first came to faith. I, I loved, I mean, I love the story of the thief on the cross. It it had a, a very tragic beauty to it. Obviously, I mean, the crucifixion crucifixion of Christ is, is, is something that is tragic in both unbelievably beautiful in the fact that he's willing to lay down his life for us. Um, But I wanted to take a look at Luke 23 and specifically the repentant thief on the cross to see what we can learn about um, salvation. Now, I I want to reaffirm that I do believe in the Trinity. I do believe in the five solas, all that. But Um, do you affirm the virgin birth, which I do affirm? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's Good. good to hear you actually say that with your voice, Nick. Oh man, inside joke. Alrighty. So uh I I looked at Luke twenty-three, but I also looked at the two parallel passages in the other gospels, which is Mark fifteen, twenty-two through forty-one, and then Matthew twenty-seven, forty-five through sixty-six. And I wanted to just see, you know, what can we learn theologically from the thief on the cross and what Jesus said about him. So when we read through it, in Luke 23, verse 33, uh, we read, when they came to the place, and this is from the NASB, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. So we see Jesus with at least two criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, being crucified. So I'm just kind of highlighting the main facts here that we can come back and refer to later. And then in verses 41 through 43, of course, we have this passage that just gets me kind of choked up almost every time I, I read it seriously. Um, we indeed are suffering 
justly. This is the, the repentant thief, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he says to him, truly, uh, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So we look at this here, uh, and then we look down at Mark 15, 20 through, uh, 22 through 41, specifically verse 32. And it says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So if we look at the parallel accounts here, it looks as if at first, it says those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. It looks like at first this repentant thief was indeed insulting Jesus before he said this. So from my reading and and you know please feel free to challenge me on it. But from my reading Jesus and the two thieves go up. The thieves are mocking him and at some point in the time during the one thief's crucifixion he repents. Now if we're thinking about a thief under Roman law this this is a bad dude. He's being crucified. He's uh, a thief. He is mocking the Lord of glory, and yet he repents and comes to Christ. So there is no indication here that this thief was in any way associated with Jesus before being up on the cross. I love this section because if you're dealing with any works-based faith, if you're dealing with uh, Mormonisms, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you know, people like that, this is a great passage to go to to show that very, very likely there was absolutely nothing this thief could do. He was, he was nailed to wood. He couldn't move. All he could do was beg for forgiveness, and he was, and it was given to him freely. He wasn't baptized, anything like that that we can see. So it, it's, it, you talk about the minimal facts approach you know, with the Gospels and the evidence for Jesus and the, and the, and the crucifixion and the resurrection and so on. This is almost like the minimal, um, minimal salvation if you will. Mm -hmm. So the repentant thief was a criminal and he was at first mocking him. Um, hang on, I'm looking over my notes here just to make sure I'm, I'm kind of, I did do notes, but I, I don't, I, I have a very organic as one of my former administrators would say a very organic form of organization, it's just kind of the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. Using notes. That's cute. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, uh, Given his mocking of Jesus, we don't think he's a believer. At some point, we do think he repents, and Jesus confirms. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He does confirm the salvation of this repentant man. So there were three key things that I take away from this. And now, given I do, I, I do have to read a tiny little bit into the text, but I do think my conclusions are warranted based on what we know. Uh, one, it's never too late to repent. Uh, we see, you know, in in First John, uh, John one, I think it's verse nine, where he says uh, you, he's faithful to forgive you of all unrighteousness, um, and it doesn't ever talk about there being some sort of a deadline. Like, well, sorry, you're past fifty, too late, man. You know, um, and also another interesting thing here is it's likely that deep theological understanding is not necessarily not necessary for salvation. And let me let me clarify what I mean by that. What I mean is, um, for example, like the idea of the Trinity, like calling the Trinity proper. Um, if, if Jesus had explained the Trinity uh, using specifically that term, uh, whatever the, the Aramaic or, or Greek or you know, whatever equivalent would have been, um, I think we would have read later on, specifically in Peter's epistle, something about that. 
because Peter was there. If memory serves, Peter was right there during his crucifixion, or or John. I mean, John was too, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Am I, my memory serving me right here? The beloved disciple we know was there. A lot of people think it's John. There are some Christians who don't think it was John, but we do know the beloved disciple was there. Okay, and do, we do. Okay, so we do know John was there. And okay, um, anyway, he was pretty so, much the only one. Was okay. All right, never mind then. So, at the very least, then we should have, we should have, at some point, I think, heard a more thorough explanation of the uh not that john is insufficient obviously because it's you know it's theonistos um but it's not how so many skeptics and atheists or jehovah's witnesses for example want it spelled out you know trinity's not in the bible um well okay doesn't mean that it's not a a a uh, you know a theological truth or anything like that it just means that that word that phrase is not in there mm-hmm. so i i think and and this has been helpful for me because I, I tended to, early on in my faith, be very kind of dogmatic and very, um, I guess you could say, legalistic in saying you have to believe this, that, 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 that. And obviously, we do have to believe certain things. But the depth of understanding, I don't think is, um, I don't think is quite as deep as certainly I I used to believe. Um, but again, we should always strive for as deep an understanding as possible. So I want, I want well, to hear some you. Let me hit you with an illustration that I used in my book. You can just hit him um, anyway if you want where, to. Uh, sadly, that's not available. Although, if you want to throw in a uh, punching sound effect, that'd be cool. <laughs> Mike Tunchin's Pulse, pass, uh, whatever that one's called. Punch out. Yeah, preferably. Anyway, in my book, I'm talking about the need for apologetics. And one of the illustrations that I give is if you happen to be sitting next to, say, a Muslim woman on an airplane and you give the gospel to her about sin and the um, redemption through Christ's sacrifice, and she bows her knee that moment to accept Christ as her savior, she's going to be dragging a lot of Islamic baggage along with her into Christianity which she would need to be educated out of over time. But if the plane were to crash moments later, how many people would say that she doesn't go to heaven just because she hasn't gotten rid of her Islamic baggage yet? I think that's a great point. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's something it. we could add to this also, Neil, is that there are many people who struggle with the question of forgiveness. And I think a lot of people live this fear. They want to know, am I a goat? Or a sheep, because, you know, I've believed in Jesus, but look at a passage like Matthew 7. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and you'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And we all know that terrifies some Christians. Absolutely. The funny thing about it, though, is I think that the people who are terrified by it are the ones who don't actually have to worry about it. Exactly. I find that passage very helpful for people who talk about uh, Christianity being untrue because there are evil Christians out there. Because uh-huh. the Bible itself says there are people who think they're Christians but aren't because of their evil deeds. Mm-hmm. I found it quite interesting that lately I've been coming across more and more people. I can think of three right now that I've just been coming across like in the past month or so. And- Dude, we're right here. <laughs> and they they say 
I'm not a Christian because the church is full of hypocrites. And it's always struck me as, in fact, more of an excuse argument, as if, okay, the church is full of hypocrites, therefore Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That one doesn't exactly follow. Yeah, a lot of people who reject Christianity don't have a good sense of the doctrine of grace. It's mm -hmm. all about works. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I don't have a whole lot more to add on that. I guess my segment is a wee bit short, uh, but I'm just always – Luke 23, hmm. when I first came to faith, was that passage I just always went back to, and I was always amazed. Here is this, here is this man, God-man, Jesus Christ, being crucified. I can only imagine the kind of pain he was going through, and yet even in his excruciating pain, both physical and spiritual, as we know the sins of – uh, you know, the sins of man would be placed upon him. Um, he is going through this excruciating pain and yet still shows grace and mercy to this man who was bad enough to be crucified. Excruciating that, is the right word indeed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Excru it, excruciating. It, I, I'm sure you guys are familiar with like the doctor who, who went through, um, and, and, kind of examined what happens during a crucifixion and um, where the what happens with the pressure of the nails and everything. It's just, yeah. ugh, it's, just it's gruesome. It's absolutely gruesome. Yeah, I heard about all about it in the Lee Strobel movie that I just yeah. watched. Yeah. Name the, drop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know something I'd add into that that struck me when I read it a few years ago by that count, because it had been one I'd read all my life, and then all of a sudden, it's one of those things like you've read something about it all your life, and you read it again, you notice something you hadn't noticed before. And that's the idea of what kind of person looks at a man dying on the cross and says, that person is coming into his kingdom. Not many, considering the reason that they'd be up on the cross in the first place. Yeah, and yet the, the thief on the cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, as if to say, I know this isn't the end of a story for you. Yeah. One wonders how I came to that conclusion in the first place. Exactly. Possibly it was Christ's grace under the torment and um, mocking that he was receiving. Mm -hmm. Of course, it could yeah. also be any of the unusual events that were going around at the time as well, like the, uh, the sun going down and things like that. Well, Neil, I cannot tell you how many things I draw from that account of the thief on the cross. Oh, it's, now, it's, yeah, it's incredible. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Yeah. So, what you're doing is a gospel harmonization there where you're bringing in several accounts and trying to harmonize them to the same event. And that's what I'm sympathetic for myself. But mm -hmm. not every Christian apologist would agree to a harmonization uh, tactic. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that, Nick? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, my father-in-law just wrote the book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? And I have interviewed him on that. And part of the problem with some harmonizations, though, is that a lot of them are really, really strained. Sure. What are your thoughts about this account and the one where the both thieves are mocking him and the other one where one of the thieves present, rep, uh, repents? I think that's a very simple harmonization, and I really don't think it's too strained. I mean, you can't really very well produce another thief that was different from the ones that came up on a cross later on and such. It has to be one of the others, and 
If you're going to treat the accounts that way, then one of them obviously did have to have a change of heart. Yep. At this point, we go on, I can remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast and the Mention of Waters podcast. The Mention of Waters is going to be a separate one now, but this is just kind of an idea to get us started on how we're going to be doing this. But I like to remind everyone, everything we do here is listener-supported by people like you. Now, if you want to support the Deeper Waters podcast, go to deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link on the side to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And when you click on that, you get taken to Risen Jesus. Like I've said, that's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation there, and then you get in touch with me, or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or his wife, Debbie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They will make sure we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. And you can also buy some ebooks I've either written, such as The Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, or co-written, God and Natural Disasters, Defining Inerrancy, Groundnuts. These are all available on Amazon, and all pro- some proceeds from those will go to helping support deeper waters. And also, uh, guys out there listening, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but Women tend to like jewelry. My own wife is allergic to knicker, but she likes to wear something nice if she can. And if you want to get in good with that lady in your life, why not get her jewelry? We actually have a jewelry store ran by my friend Lena Clester of Premier Jewelers. You get in touch with me if you want to know how to get that, if you need some more help, if you can't figure it out for some reason. And... Guys, you can buy some piece of jewelry for that lady in your life. Whatever you buy, 25% of it will go to deeper waters. So guys, you can buy something special for her to make up for that big screw-up that I know you recently did. Or (laughs) you can buy something for her to serve as insurance for that screw-up that I know you're going to do in the future. How did you know that? Just by like four sets of earrings, having them hidden away in the closet, and as soon as you screw up here, honey, I got you something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have to keep backups around here. So, there you go. So, um, let's uh, see about you guys. Neil, do you have an organization you'd like to see people support? Uh, oh boy. You know, I just, I mean, I have my, uh, my own little website called Soul Winning. It's just soulwinningministry.com. Uh, mm-hmm. But as far as uh, shout outs and whatnot, uh, years ago, I went to uh, Living Waters, uh, uh, run by Ray, Ray Comfort. I went down to their uh, evangelism training, and they they were uh, kind enough to help me. I, I don't want to say specifically, but they helped me out in a very tremendous way. And so I always really encourage people to look at Living Waters. Uh, you, you may not want to share the gospel the, the same way that they do, but boy, they make an impact. I really appreciate them. Okay. 
Joe, do you have something? Well, the only thing I could possibly say is uh, that I have a book out there. <laughs> don't uh, don't listen to everything that Nick said about it. Uh, it's pretty good. The uh, title of the book is Christ-Centered Apologetics, and the thesis of the book is that you can combine apologetics and evangelism. In fact, they should be one and the same. And then it talks about how to do that, and it gives a case for uh, Christ's life and resurrection, similar to the one that Nick just gave. Now, Joe, since we're talking about Fomentionables here, what about people who are listening and are wanting to support Fomentionables? What's in the works? Well, we don't have a donation system just yet. Dimensionables is still a very new ministry. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, I was hesitant to use the M word until just recently. However, if it continues to grow at the rate that it has, we may have a donation system coming along because we certainly, if we're working on a podcast and we're traveling to speak and so forth, we'll have some uh, different expenses that we'll need to cover. Mm -hmm. Although we're definitely not in it for the money. Any one of us would do this for free. Yeah. If we had the resources. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. At any rate, yep. uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, the web address, if you want to keep up with the mentionables, and our webpage has the books that uh, the various mentionables have written. The website is Joel, J O E L, Furches, mm -hmm. F is in Foxtrot, U R C H E S, forward slash. The dash mentionables dash one, mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah, and made it very simple for everyone, didn't you? Well, hey, one of these days I might have the money to create um, our own website. <coughs> I was gonna say, but, yeah, man, a uh, <laughs> you could you can get a web address for like what ten bucks. Uh, but that's how sure, poor we are maybe. in apologetics. Just so everyone knows. <laughs> there you go. Again. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be writers mm. or podcasters. Yeah, so, how about we talk a little bit about this part, this, uh, this conference coming up? I mean, how did this all get started, and where if people want to go to this conference? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, the mentionables started out as kind of a web joke that we threw around, and then it just kind of ballooned out from there. Once I started talking about my excitement, that this was happening to somebody, a friend of mine in North Carolina. He set up a conference of his own initiative for us. Mm -hmm. And so the conference is coming up on May 18th at Greensboro Christian Church in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, just look it up on the web. To the best of my knowledge, the start time would be on Friday the 18th at around 5.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want me to say? I think that that could cover. You know, if we're talking about things to talk about here as well and such, something that's on my mind maybe is we've got someone staying here with us for a little while who's evacuating from the for Hurricane Irma down in Florida, and he's a good friend of a uh, Michael and Sarah Charlevoix. And if you all don't know that Pepper. That is a couple that has gone through a lot of suffering in their short time they've been married, just under four years. They've had to go through a lot. You can read their Sarah's blog online, and they're staying up here with someone else because we didn't have enough room for more. And 
So we got someone here, and they're a single guy, so whenever I go out anywhere, they come with me and such. And I'm seeing her, and he's wanting to learn a lot about projects, but I find I'm teaching him more about marriage. And I think this is something that we often miss when we talk about apologetics, and that's the direct application of it. That if you're studying apologetics and it doesn't change the way you live, you're doing something wrong. And the main thing I want to leave him with is whenever he goes his own way, he can look back on our time together and think, you know, that was someone I met who really loves his wife. And when I get married, I want that too. With you so far? Yes. I, I, I'm wondering what you all have to say about that. I mean, did, did I just cure y'all's interest at that point or what? <laughs> Porn in specific? I mean, more about like, you know, the personal application of apologetics. It, I mean, I, I'm applying it to marriage, but it applies in many other places. It's not just an empty academic pursuit, you know? I think apologetics uh, appeals to a certain kind of person, whether mm -hmm. or not they're fighting against attacks on their faith. Yeah, uh, it can actually be a faith builder if you happen mm -hmm. to be, you know, one more more of an analytical style thinker than an intuitive mm -hmm. style thinker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I one of the reasons that I was originally attracted to apologetics is that it just appealed to me as a learner. Mm -hmm. um, so that being the case, you could turn the, any of these into a sermon and it would talk about the proper way of living mm -hmm. under Christ as much as a, a intuitive, emotive type sermon would. Wait, so wait. if we're doing apologetics correctly, we're bringing the gospel into it. Wait, wait. You're talking about using apologetics in a sermon. That's, that's unallowable, isn't it? I don't know about all that. I'm not a minister. I'm an apologist. I, I've seen more than enough sermons, and I, I think usually the general approach I get is that you're not supposed to bring in all this intellectual stuff into a sermon and such. And I'm thinking, you know, it'd be kind of good if we could have this show up in a sermon every now and then to actually, you know, maybe talk about how we know this is true and why we know it's true and then what a difference it's supposed to make in our lives instead of just having truths of Christianity out there floating in midair with nothing to support them on. Well, and I Dang will it, say I'm, this too. I'm an apologist, not a minister. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think the the most important, well, okay, maybe this is overstating it a little bit, but I think one of the most important people you can be an apologist to is yourself. Mm-hmm. Because think about this. I, I went through, uh, I don't want to get into specifics, but about two years ago, uh, I went through a very, very dark time. Um, I was very upset, very down, um, and, and just sad and brokenhearted and angry and frustrated and confused. And I had to turn myself to the scriptures constantly and remind myself God is working everything for the good of those who love him. God knows the ends from the beginning, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of a, a point where you have to let the scriptures override your emotions. Mm -hmm. That is one of the most critical things we can do as believers yes. is training ourselves to have the scriptures that we recognize, okay, what I am reading from this scripture is truth. What I am feeling 
isn't necessarily truth. Mm. Truth comes from the mind of God and the mouth of God, not from the heart of Neil Hess. And I have to constantly remind myself of that. And I'll tell you what, if if I wouldn't have been into apologetics, I mean, I mean obviously you talk about this gets into the you know perseverance of the saints kind of an issue, but let, let's just kind of throw that out the window for a second here. Right. Had I had I not studied apologetics, I don't know that two years ago if if I would have if I would have walked away from the faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it would have been uh, it was it was that bad, and I'll, I'll tell you what, like I said, I mean, ignoring the the Calvinist Arminian point of things for a while, um, I, it it easily could have, and I went through it, and I go, boy, something like this could tear a person to shreds. I can I can absolutely see that, and it's really encouraged me to stick to the scriptures and also encourage with the scriptures and encouraging with a just a broken heart for people. And I, that's something I notice in myself. The longer I go, especially looking at the news around the world, I'm like, Lord, give me a heart like yours. I know it sounds very cliche, but it's absolutely biblical. We, we need to be delivering that truth which is with as much love and, and tear-stained pillows as we possibly can. You know, I can say on my end, that when I encountered apologetics, I was in Bible college, I think my first year. And honestly, when I went to Bible college, I was in a very wrecked state of mind, depression, everything. I, I, I find it amazing. I lived through all of that. But when I came to apologetics, everything started to change because apologetics gave me a focus, a purpose, and then it showed me that my Christianity is true, and I started learning how to apply all those differences to my life. And my wife is starting to realize more and more about this. I mean, she's not into apologetics of kind, but she's starting to see more of the impact, and I recommend people check out her blog. It's written. Jeez, how do the two of you communicate? What do you mean? They comment on each other's blogs. Oh, okay. Well, her blog Proceed. is written I am red dot blogspot dot com. She meant to write written in red and had a typo, and it's kind of stuck. But I encourage you all to go back. She's much more of the existential thing, and yeah, we do we do communicate on many things. But believe it or not, we we don't always talk about apologetics and such. I mean, she she knows it's what I do. It's a great passion of mine and such, and we can have good discussions on it, even if we don't share the exact same interests and enthusiasm. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's something that it's it's really easy to lose sight of, and Nero's story, I think, definitely shows that. But in our culture, I think we're very much so feelings-oriented. And this is something else I've been thinking on, that we have... So much work that we often do to try to understand our feelings and control our feelings, and to an extent we should do that, there's very little about the character behind those feelings. We don't really talk about changing our persons. We talk about changing how we feel about things. There's not much talk about virtue anymore today. Well, and the, I think the thing is because of when, as we all know from moral, you know, the natural law kind of argument, mm-hmm. virtue and virtue is is uh, completely connected to morality, mm-hmm. and morality is a. Let's face it, without God, we know that 
that moral absolutes just don't exist. Uh, they just don't. And so when you have a culture that is moving away from God, it's not surprising to me at all that there is no more talk of virtue and morality and instead just feelings. Because let's face it, that's all a secular atheistic culture has to go to at that point is just, you know, oh, I feel this way. I feel that way. They don't have any transcendent spiritual truth to rely upon. Yeah, the thing is, we've reached a point where it's pretty much the same way for us in church. That's what we talk about. We talk about our feelings over and over instead of talking about what's really true, what what kind of character we need. We don't talk much about walking like Jesus anymore. So, Neil, I want to jump in on what you just said. Um, Go for it. Tie it back into my section that I just did. Well, it it's is all about you, Joel. How, it's true. I I didn't want to I didn't want to say it, but thank you. Um, so you were talking about how in the secular culture morality had to be tied back into feelings, correct? Uh, I okay. Well, let me put it this way: I don't think it. I think it usually is. Does it have to be? I I can't think of anything else that can be t- tied to. Frankly, I agree. Versus in. Christianity, at least, we can tie back into the nature of God, which is a concrete, absolutely uh, absolute standard right. of morality. So it's interesting that at the same time, an atheist will say, well, atheism has to be true because atheists are smarter and they're analytical in their thinking. And then they'll turn around and use emotive and intuitive reasoning for morality versus in Christianity – no matter how intuitive I am, I'm basing morale, my morality in a concrete, absolute standard. Mm-hmm. Well, think about how many times Dawkins and Hitchens and so on and so forth who cannot give a foundational reason for morality are some of the most moralistic people you will ever hear decry someone from a podium. Yep, mm-hmm. from an intuitive sense of uh, thinking, not an analytical one. Bingo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it so amazing also that I can read so many atheists who are say, there is no evidence for objective morality in such, and then right in the very next breath, they'll talk about all the evils that God does in the Bible. And I'm mm-hmm. like, do you not see this at all? Well, was it Rome, say in Romans 1, they've been blinded mm-hmm. uh, by their uh, unbelief? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's literally, you know, it's it's extremely cliche, especially in more in reform circles. But man, Romans one, it is so easy to see those things every single day, especially if you're on social media. Mm-hmm. You know, I I just thought it was important to say because so many, I think especially me of our younger people growing up, they've they've made Christianity all about just simply what you do and how you live and how you feel. Instead of tying it all back to the grand central truths of Christianity, that being a Christian just means pretty much just being a good person. And then later on, if you realize where, geez, you can just study the great philosophers or study good psychology and be a good person, what purpose does Christianity have then? And I think that's part of the problem with our culture today, that we don't know what purpose Christianity serves. It's just seen as just a way to live your life instead of teaching truths about the universe. Absolutely. Well, it's all about law and gospel. Mm-hmm. The law convicts and the gospel redeems. Mm-hmm. If we don't have the two, 
if if we uh, go with the standard that everybody's a good person right. and that there are no moral absolutes, then we've gotten rid of the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and th- most important for understanding the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's something too I found talking with people that, um, in fact, I'm going to do a little video on this now. That I think about it probably later today. Um, but there's a, uh, you know, like especially, yeah. Well, you know, um, I am a middle school teacher. So anyway, um, <laughs> that's, we're, we're that's very sorry for you too. I, yeah, we'll keep you in prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, so often when we're talking politics with people, if we're talking about abortion or if we're talking about, uh, immigration or something else, it's a great opportunity to, instead of addressing the issue proper, take it deeper, take the conversation deeper. Okay, well, why is this you know, rule on immigration wrong? Why is abortion wrong? Why, you know, and people are not prepared for that. Most, I would say a good 75%, if not higher, in fact, 75% is probably being very generous, uh, a higher percent of the population knows how to spit out chance or repeat rhyming phrases that sound super clever but if you get them in a deeper conversation their worldview completely falls apart it, and they have absolutely no answer if if they're not living consistently uh with either their christian you know uh, christian worldview and of course a consistent atheist worldview can only say you know um that feels wrong or i didn't approve of that or i i don't prefer that that's because we also live in a culture that thrives on sound bites and cliches and the argument from the memes. The memes, as come well. on. Yeah. yeah I mean, hey, you, guys, you, can, can you keep your statements to 140 characters or less for me, please? <laughs> tweet it out later, man. Yeah. Hashtag. There is no deep on Facebook. There you go. I mean, I, I've had atheists on uh, Twitter want me to kind of be able to explain my whole argument in that 140 characters of resume. Sorry, it's not happening. Sure. I saw, did you guys ever see the video of Doug Wilson uh, when he went to a campus and was shouted down by the tolerance people? Uh, and, and he oh, goes, you know, when that happens. Oh, it's, it was hilarious. And he goes, you know, guys, sometimes I have thoughts that require more than one sentence to express. <laughs> <laughs> I just died laughing. I was like, that's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, got- there is no deep on Facebook. That's a t-shirt idea right there. Mm-hmm. This is the memory characters for on, uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, my my rule with memes are memes can be humorous ways to illustrate a point. Memes should never make the point. I mean, take it back to what Neil was saying. It is part of the soundbite culture that I I've often said that people today they don't know how to think. They know what to think. Hey, Nick, the yes. ends justify the memes, all right? Mm-hmm. Ah! That was a good one. That's a knee slapper. Oh, yeah. Oh, other T-shirt idea there. Mm-hmm. Now, now I think I know how we're going to be raising money for the mention of ours. Joe's going to make T-shirts for us. They're going to pay us to oh, stop. Joe makes a lot of things for us. Yeah. The thing is, I, I'm more amusing about Joe sitting down with his, uh, with his sewing machine and his needers and making all these shirts over and over. Hey, guys, you're ruining my manly image here. What manly image? Ah, you beat <laughs> me to it. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got to get a snake tattoo, dang it. Hiss, hiss. 
jeez. Oh, Proceeding on. You're listening to the vegetables. <laughs> yeah, the vegetables are where we have good apologetics and good making fun of one another. Busting chops is a love language. Eric yeah. Tax has told me so. Yeah, we, we, well, we, we, should be say, we should be saying something about our other vegetables about, uh, you know, how... Something negative about them as well, instead of just stick to keeping it to each other. Negative about them. They couldn't make the podcast. Boo. Yep. Well, we do live across the nation from one another, so there's that. I say, I think I'm most isolated out of everybody, because you guys are in the Carolinas, right? Nope. Not me. What? I'm in Maryland. Oh, Maryland. Okay, Maryland. People haven't even heard of Maryland. Nero's so isolated, he doesn't know where we are. See? <laughs> Yeah, I'm in Georgia. Georgia, Maryland. Yeah. Okay, so where where are the other guys from? Well, we got one in California. Mm-hmm. We've got that's Tyler. We've got you in Washington State. We've got Nick in Georgia. We've got um, I'm blanking on the name. Chad, uh, Chad is in. Yeah, Chad's technically in Maryland too, although he's practically in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And Adam is in Virginia. Mm, okay. So we basically got the West Coast and the East Coast. Mm-hmm. By the way. Thing. To any of our listeners in Hawaii, if you'd like to sponsor me to move to Hawaii to be a mentionable <laughs> out there, I am more than happy. And uh, just reach out to me. I'm at Neil K. Hess on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I, I think my wife would be happy with either Virginia Beach again, since she grew up there, or Seattle. We need to get some uh, more mentionables in the Midwest, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, people live there? <laughs> yeah, well. I, I thought, I thought it was apologist kind of, rancher. I thought it was kind of like Canada, a whole big area, but no one really lives there. Jeez, guys, you're insulting some of our audience here. We love our Midwestern listeners. We love two of them. I don't know. This this is technically your show, Nick. I, I don't yeah. know what your uh, what your demographics are, man. I I, I wish I knew that. Uh, I I do get. Pretty good reviews on my show, at least until now. This is, this is probably going to kill it for me. I was going to say you're going to you're going to find it uh, uh, drop off and then plateau, man. I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah, but I mean, so I mean, what all can people be expecting then when they listen to a Mission of Ours podcast from now on? I mean, it's going to be different guests on from time to time, different one of us, right? Well, the idea behind the Mission of Ours podcast is to have a rotating. Um, slot for the various mentionables, but we're trying to keep it just mentionables. We haven't mm-hmm. discussed having guests on yet. Right. Uh, that's a discussion to table for the future. Mm-hmm. The idea behind the mentionables podcast is that each of us brings certain talents and skills to the table, and so we're going to have uh, various segments uh, for each one of us to talk about a subject that week that fits into our own particular category of unique perspective. And then we're going to have a discussion uh of it as a group, just like we've been doing today. So today's format is very similar to what we'll be doing in the future. Nick presented on a subject. We talked about it. I did. We didn't talk about it. And then Neil did. And we did. <laughs> well, well, that's because... Mine was better. Yeah, yeah. Yours just wasn't interesting enough for us, so... I know. It's dry and academic, and you're Christian, so... <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Burn. Uh, as expected... We're going to have to make fun of each other's topics and bust each other's chops over what they've said and such regularly because, you know, we're guys. 
this show has been unscripted entirely. Uh, uh, yeah, I think sorry. people can probably. <laughs> uh, of course, it could be interesting how how things could change if we ever to get it, do get a female unmentionable in female mentionable in here. Yeah, I was trying for some, but I haven't quite cracked that one yet. Mentionable Lita. Hmm. Yeah. She could be an apologetic chick. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. No. There's a t-shirt was, right there. That was horrible, dude. <laughs> Very much so. Oh. All right. No t-shirt for that one. You know, Rich, uh, you know, Joe, uh, stick to writing that comedy, please. Uh, that was my next field to break into, man. Mm. Well, you, we can just say I've probably saved a lot of people in a listening audience then at that point. And nobody reads my stuff anyway. Yeah, that's uh, true. Sorry. Self-depreciation is not my style. Sorry, guys. Wait, wait, you, you write stuff? Yeah, just, I, just, just Google my name, dang it. Is this a new development? I've been doing it since 2011, dude. Okay, so it is a new development. Actually, before that, it's just I've been doing freelancing since then. Mm-hmm. Now, we are going to have a mention of our... We have talked about... There will be a mention of our website eventually, right? That's what I'd like. Um, but mm-hmm. we'll see how funds for that go. We're all broke. I've yeah. already pulled the odds. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if people want to find out more about the upcoming conference and such, do you have a place where they can go to? Uh, well, I would recommend our Facebook page, which is, uh, not something I've memorized yet. (laughs) I will pull it up momentarily. That's a very interesting URL for that Facebook page. Not something I've memorized yet. That's a good one. Dot com. Yeah. Could people just type Uh, in the mention of bars and find us? Yes, they can search for the Mentionables and find mm-hmm. us. There's a uh, actually a musical group out there called the Mentionables. No relation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Facebook.com forward slash Mentionable One. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, we've We're had at Mentionables One on Twitter, mm-hmm. and you'll get conference updates. Tickets are now on sale mm-hmm. through uh, Ticketmaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who uh, who buy a ticket early, they also get a chance to. Uh, Try and get Tidal Vela in a dunking booth and see if they can hit hit the target with him. It's such a blessing not having him on this episode. Yeah, it is. He he doesn't know about the dunking booth yet, does he? No, and I think he's too cool to listen to your podcast. So you got that going on too. Mm-hmm. Well, normally I'd get to this part earlier in the show, but since there's three of us, I, I think I need to go a bit early here and. and uh, Start wrapping things up. Um, Neo, do you have a, a website, a email, way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. All, all of our listeners have tuned out already, guys. <laughs> yeah, we should have done this at the beginning, man. I don't know if anyone's going to be going this far. Anyway, no. So if people want to get a hold of me, um, best way to do it is just go to soulwinningministry.com. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the ministry webpage. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Neil, N-E-I-L, K as in Kenneth, Hess, H-E-S as in Sunday, and another S. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but I only add people on Facebook that I know like in real life, so don't bother adding me at that point. Just tweet me or something. Uh, and then you can also email me. Uh, it's Let me double check and make sure I get the right email 
out here. Yeah, so it's Neil at soulwinningministry.com. That's really hard for me to remember for some reason. I, I, I can imagine. It, it must be very difficult to remember your name and your ministry at the same time. It's That's four so letters, <laughs> man. That's a lot. Dude. Nick, N-I-C-K, and Joel, J-O-E-L. <laughs> so, um, do you have oh, a question? Yeah. Yeah, do you have a final message you'd like to leave for the audience today? Uh, yeah, basically just, you know, um, be bold, be faithful, and be filled with grace. And Joe, what about you? Do you have a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch if they want to find out more? My website's pretty easy to remember. It's joelfurches.com. That's mm-hmm. J-O-E-L-F-U-R-C-H-E-S.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd it probably be hard for Neil to remember since we, we know we struggle with his email and such. I have True. to keep looking at your guys' names to remember who you are. Shoot. It's yeah. okay, It's okay, Nate. We get it. <laughs> Nate. <laughs> now, Joe, do you Good have a, any final messages you'd like to leave today for the audience? Oh, well, I would recommend that you think before you leap and remember that We are living in an age with unlimited resources when it Mm -hmm. comes to our faith. And rather than listen to that one meme that really knocks the wind out of you, Mm -hmm. take a look at all the resources out there. Mm -hmm. As atheism has been on the rise, so has apologetics. It's Mm -hmm. become an everyday thing. Hence the formation of the mentionables. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to find questions to those answers or Mm -hmm. answers to those questions, too. And those you up there that know about me, my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and the podcast here, and I encourage you to go and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast, and then be listening for the Mention of Ours podcast. I'll be on there from now on, so if you want to hear my opinions on things instead of just the people I interview, that's going to be a good place to go. And I just encourage you all to learn this stuff, and then don't just learn it Live it. Apologetics should not just be a trivia game for you. It should be something that really impacts your life. And guys, hopefully we'll manage to see you back here again on the show sometime. And I hope we'll be seeing several talks together on the Mentional Bars podcast. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Nick. Yep. And if you're going to be here next week, you're going to hear nothing because I'm hoping if the money holds out, I can take Ari to Japan first. But if you're here for a week after that, we have Kevin Shoot on, talking about his book of games and God. We're going to be talking about video games, apologetics, and Christianity. For now... We already did that. Yeah, we're going to be doing a lot more in depth for a couple hours. That sounds pretty sweet. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.